Michael Hart wrote a book. He's an astrophysicist. He wrote a book a while back, the, the 100. And in his book, what he was trying to, to do was figure out the 100 most influential people in the history of the world, the people who have made the biggest impact. So you can imagine some of the names on his list. He's got Sigmund Freud on the list. You might not care about Sigmund's theories. Uh, but still, he opened up a new endeavor for mankind named psychology. You've got Louis Pasteur on the list where he uh, worked hard to communicate to the medical uh, community that really quite often our sickness is because of these little microscopic things named germs. And that, that he was able to come up with an inoculation for mankind to protect them from much disease. And so, yeah, Louis Pasteur's name is on there. And so you might ask yourself, is Jesus' name on there? And yes, Michael Hart has Jesus. I think he's, Jesus is on the list number three. He's got Mohammed, then he's got Isaac Newton, then he's got Jesus. And just so you know, both Muhammad and Isaac Newton were both influenced by, by Jesus. Isaac Newton was, in fact, one of his followers. Uh, but he has them number three on the list. Ah, I'm a little bit biased. Maybe he, he missed that one. But we'll, we'll get to that. In all, in all honesty, as I thought about it, I think that maybe in many Christians' lives, evangelical Christians' lives, maybe three on the list is probably about right. We'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but certainly, Jesus was an influential person. Uh, much more so than people know, not just as far as he started a church. Uh, Jesus' followers, whenever you look at your wristwatch, mechanical clocks were invented by monks trying to figure out when they should pray. Eyeglasses were invented by monks trying to look at the Word of God closer. Uh, Jesus' followers are those who made greater strides than anybody else on the um, protection of children in this world. Robert Rakes, remember Robert Rakes, when during the Industrial Revolution, when kids worked 15 hours a day, six days a week, they had one day off Sunday, Rakes was concerned because these children could not go to school, so he invented the Sunday school. Uh, orphans were neglected in mass in our world uh, until the, the likes of the early Christians in the streets of Rome, all the way to England with George Mueller. You have Amy Carmichael and Gladys Alward. Both had major missions to orphans. Orphans were, were neglected in this world until the followers of Christ came on. The followers of Christ, Jesus, did, was probably the number one women's liver. You know, it was Jesus who invited the women to be his followers. It was Jesus that allowed the women to be the first at the tomb. Uh, Paul carries on in that spirit. And Paul says that, that in Christ there is neither male nor female. Now for us, we're going, well, yeah, of course, duh. But back then, it was not a duh thing. It was like, are you serious? And then Peter comes along and he says, men, your, your wives are co-heirs. They're equal with you in the kingdom of God. This was an amazing, a game-changing thought. And then, of course, William Wilberforce and his team of mostly Christ followers who sought to, to wipe out slave trade in this world. We got, we got Christians who were the first to lead the parade in seeking to eradicate illiteracy, at least in our country and, and ultimately the world. The Christians were the ones who brought in mass education in our country. Whenever missionaries in the great missionary movement of the 1800s would go out, they'd put up three buildings right away. They'd put up a church. They'd put up a, a hospital. They'd put up a school. Uh, science owes itself, believe it or not, to Christ. You've got Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler. 
You've got Francis Bacon. You've got William Ockley. You've got Arakam. You've got Joseph Priestley. You've got Isaac Newton. You've got Blaise Pascal. You've got George Washington Carver. And on and on. Foundation pioneers of science. We're followers of Christ. Certainly, Jesus impacted our world more than anybody else. But you have to ask yourself, who was Jesus? Who is Jesus? Was he just like a nice guy? I mean, I mean was, was he somebody who you know he had uh, uh, concern for children and, and old people and, and dogs? He was just somebody who had a great sense of, of excitement and understanding about himself. He cared for people. He was just a nice guy. Or was maybe Jesus a religious leader? That's all he was, really. He was just somebody who was able to resuscitate a dead religion and come up with a new moral understanding, a moral philosophy of life. And somehow he was able to bring about this huge following. He was just a religious leader, though. Maybe he was just really a great leader, period. He was able to look at our world and he was able to exegete the, the community and come up with a, a product, albeit spiritual, but you could, you could produce it for the masses and his winsomeness and his charisma. He was just a great leader and that's why we are here this morning. He was just a great leader. Is that really so? You know, I first met Jesus. I was in Sunday school uh, way back when. It was the flannel graph and the cutoff cardboard Jesus and, you know, he was always, every week he was in Jerusalem or he was in Jericho, he was in Capernaum. And on the flannel graph, it looked the same every week. I couldn't figure that part out. But he was, he was smiling and he always wearing the same dress. But he looked nice and I thought, he's friendly. I like him. And then as I grew, I associated Jesus with the awards I got in Awana and with the crafts I did in VBS and with the games I played in youth group. And with my red carpet and red pews in the church of my boyhood, associated Jesus with those things. And then as time goes on, uh, college kicked in and my picture of Jesus shifted a little bit and there's always a new spiritual guru that's coming on the scene, right, with a new book and a new novel idea and so that worked in there. And PBS had a documentary and there was an article in Newsweek and National, Gra- National Geographic was saying such and such, historical find, and so that's coloring it a little bit. And then you've got your pseudo-theologian friends who are trying to offer their ideas and your own musings about who he is. When you stop and look at it, it's almost like a Frankenstein Jesus. You know, some parts are true, no question about it, but other parts maybe not as true. And we get this image of who Jesus is. Now, it's real important that we know who he is, though. Uh, in... Uh, C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. It's the second book in, in the Narnia series. Um, you've got, first book, you had the Pevensey children end up in Narnia. You know, uh, Peter and, and Edmund and Susan Lucy, and they meet Aslan, the, the, the Christ figure, right? And then in Prince Caspian, they go back. And then while they're back, Lucy runs across Aslan. And she says this. She says, Aslan, you're bigger And Aslan says, well, that's because you're older, little one. She says, not because you are. I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Don't you love that? As we grow, Jesus gets bigger as we grow spiritually. But here's my question. I ask this to to me all the time. Is Aslan bigger this year than he was last year? Is he bigger in my heart and mind than he was three years ago, five years ago, 
15 years ago? Is it, maybe does it work the way it does when you're children? You know how you go back to your playground and you go back to the house you grew up in. It seemed so big when you were little, but now it's so small. And maybe Jesus was much larger back then, but now that you're grown, he's just shrunk a little bit. When, when Aslan grows, when Aslan grows, we know him more intimately. We can hear his voice more clearly when Aslan grows. When Aslan grows, we, we can converse more earnestly and we obey more readily and we trust more fully and we reflect him more completely, don't we? And we can win this kingdom, for, bring it down here more assuredly when he grows, but when he doesn't grow. We've got this twisted picture of Jesus and it's not just enough to say, well, I'm going to get to heaven one day. I've got enough Jesus to get me to heaven one day because we, I don't know if that's true, but we affect the world down here as well, humanly speaking, because our reflection of him is based on what we think him to be. And so it's imperative that we understand who Jesus is. And so that's why we're, we're embarking on a study. You know, Jesus was really, this was really important to him. Because he said this at one point. He said, unless you believe that I am he, you shall surely die in your sins. Now look at that. Look at that for just a minute. Does he say, unless you go to church and do good things and are nice and kind and kind to your sister and, and help out? And unless you, then if you don't do those things, you will surely die in your sins. He doesn't say that. Unless you, it's all about his identity and our understanding of it. He says, unless you have the right understanding of who I am, you shall surely Die in your sins is a pretty big issue here. Jesus puts all eternity in the scales on us understanding and knowing and believing in his identity. So it's pretty substantial. So you might say, well, I, I want to believe he's he, but who is he? What do, you know, what, what, what is, who is Jesus? And so what Jesus does in the Gospel of John, this is not a, a mysterious thing. He shows us seven different times in the Gospel. He says, I am, and then he attaches a different predicate, which is just going to go as another facet of, of his personhood. And these are the seven I am's of John. And so each week for the next seven weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be taking one of these seven I am's and we're going to be focusing on it and camping on it. And the goal is that our understanding of Jesus, hopefully, will become more bibline. It will, it will grow. It will reflect his word. And we will see him in ways we perhaps have not seen him before. Now, one of the things we're going to be doing over the next several weeks is we're going to be memorizing these seven I am's of John. We're going to be using a unconventional sort of memory tool. And I can pretty much promise you this. If you come for the next seven weeks and you fall asleep, but you, but you listen for at least those first ten minutes, and then you're out of it. That's okay. Go, do, go pull out your thing and do your Facebook. That's okay. But, but if you give me the first ten minutes, I promise you, by the end of those seven weeks, you will know all seven of those I am's. You'll be able to tell us where they're located in Scripture. You'll be able to tell us exactly what they are. You'll be able to tell us how they relate to ourselves. So, uh, hang on. What I want you to do even right now, let's start it tonight, or right now this morning, if you'd close your eyes with me, just close your eyes, close your eyes. Don't go to sleep. I'm not going to do anything spooky and goofy. But close your eyes for just a minute, and I need you to picture something, okay? Six loaves of bread. And these are giant loaves of bread. I mean, huge loaves. We've got three on the bottom. This is like a pyramid. Three big loaves of bread on the bottom. Two in the middle, 
And one on top. Just six huge loaves. How many loaves of bread? Not four, right? Six. Three on the bottom. You see them? Two in the middle. One on top. But this is not any old bread. This is is 35-day-old bread. I mean, this stuff is stale. And so stamped right on the end of each loaf is 35. 35-day-old bread. First loaf, 35. Second loaf, 35. Third third loaf, 35. Fourth and fifth loaf, 35. 35. Then that top loaf, sixth loaf, 35. How many loaves of bread? And how old is it? Yes, in John 6.35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Turn with me in your Bibles to John 6. As we look at John 6.35, I am the bread of of life. And while you're turning, let me give you some some background that you need to know. Because John 6 is all over this whole bread thing. The first part of John 6, first 15 verses, uh, Jesus feeds the 5,000. We talked about that last week, remember? And so with the five loaves of bread and and two fishes, and he he feeds enough to feed the whole crowd. There's 5,000 men, not to mention women and children. There's there's a huge crowd there. And then right after the picnic, when it's all done, Jesus gets away by himself up in what is known today probably as the Golan Heights. He's told his uh, disciples to get in the boat and go to Capernaum. So they take off. The, The crowd watches them go. Next morning, well, what happens that night? While everyone's sleeping, Jesus comes out. He walks on the water. That's that miracle. And gets another sermon, gets in the boat, and goes over with those guys. But in the morning, the crowd wakes up. And they look for Jesus, and they can't find him. They saw the guys get in the boat, and they counted, and Jesus was not there with them. They know, but where's Jesus at? Well, they figure Jesus can't be too terribly far from his disciples, and so they get in their boats, and they take off to go find Jesus' disciples, and they meet up with them in Capernaum, beginning in verse 25. Let's just read this, and then we'll come back and make some comments on it. It says, When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Well, they weren't sure how in the world he, he got here. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we be, we be doing to do the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. You know, it's real reminiscent of John 4, remember? With the woman at the well, give me this water to drink. Oh, this is what I need. And that's what they're saying. Okay, great. Give me this food. I won't be hungry anymore. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and do not believe. That last line, very important. You have seen me and do not believe. Now think of these, these folk he's addressing for a minute. The, the big feeding of the 5,000, which is probably closer to 20,000, was near a town called Bethesda. Bethesda, by conservative estimates, about 2,000 people who live in Bethesda. And yet you've got this picnic going on of 20,000 people. I mean, these folk didn't just leave Bethesda and go a mile out. I and mean, people traveled from all over. They had to take off work. They had to cash in vacation. They, they had to do all kinds of stuff to go see Jesus. There was some sacrifice there. And then they were with Jesus for quite some time. And Jesus heard, they listened to preaching all day. Do you want to hear preaching all day? 
I didn't hear an amen on that one. I should have, but I didn't. Um, these guys listen to Jesus preach all day, and then Jesus feeds them the very first potluck dinner. Now, only one kid brought something to eat, but that's okay with Jesus. It, it still works out. Very first potluck dinner. And then Jesus left. They literally got in their boats to go find him. I would say these guys follow Jesus. What? They're followers of Jesus. But yet, Jesus says, you see me. I mean, you hang out at church. But you don't believe. Not, not really. So you've got a picture in your mind of me that's messed up, that's wrong. And you've got to know, unless you believe that I am he, you will surely die in your sins. A Frankenstein Jesus is not good enough. It's not good enough to say, well, he's number three on my list. No, 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 that's, that's not going to work. That's good enough. And, and so there's, there's some pictures we see of Christ that the crowd had. And the first one we see, and it's probably common error that we could all fall into, is that the, some of the crowd wanted not the bread of life, they wanted a baker. They wanted a baker. Verse 26. It says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the God the Father has set his seal. These folk were there not because they saw a miracle per se, but because they were failed. And they wanted some more. Right? They want something else to eat. They want Jesus to do more things for, for them. They, they, see, they know he can do great things. They recognize that. And so they want to stay by him because if they stay by him, you know what? He's going to do more things for us. And they're, they're expecting him to. And they're calling on him to. Now, for us, we live in a very sophisticated marketing age, don't we? I mean, you know, these guys, a lot of them hire psychologists and psychiatrists, people, in order to help you and I want their product. They're, the colors are not accidental. The, the sounds are not accidental. The pictures are not accidental. It was major work that went into this. Lots of money spent in order to play on your my heart and mind and subconscious in order that when we get done with their advertising, we're saying, I, I need that. I mean, I don't just want I, I need that. And they're going, yes, they're getting a raise because that's exactly what was supposed to happen. And because we are, uh, as far as the world is concerned, are relatively affluent, you know, we've got the means to go after it. And so we're often on a, a rat race of chasing stuff, and we need just a little bit more. And so many will say, not as brassly as this, but they'll say, you need Jesus. He's number one to get to heaven. Got it, got it, got it. But down here, you know, for life, you just you need something else. You need a little bit more. Have you not heard this? Have you not said this? I really need that relationship with him or with her. I mean, I... I, I, I I can't be happy without that. I, I, I need that. Or I really need that acquisition of that, that thing, whatever it is. I mean, I, life is great with it if you don't have it. Life's not. I need my health. Or I need my financial security. Or I, I need that recognition or that award. I need that. that. And so we have Jesus. He kind of bumps down to number three on the list. And maybe we wouldn't say that. Maybe he's tied for, for number one among several other things. But there are things we need for life down here. And we say, Jesus, you got to give me... And I'm so afraid. I know I see it all the time. People come to church and they got that view of Jesus. As long as he throws me a bone once in a while, I'll keep coming. I'll keep... All right, all right, good. Because once in a while, he'll give me a something. And that's... But if that ever stops, if the food ever dries up, if the, those things ever quit, you know what? I'm walking. And we would find these guys walked. Because they said, we, we need more. More, more. 
And Jesus, to those folk, says, you got it all wrong. You've got your eyes set on the physical. And as long as your eyes are set on the physical and you're trying to acquire to satisfy, you know what? You're going to have an insatiable uh, appetite. It will be filled today. It's going to be hungry again tomorrow. You ha- the whole goal of this, this miracle thing is to recognize that I am the bread of life. He said, I can give you things all the time. Yeah, I did it with the loaves and the bread fishes. I can do this. It's not a problem for me. But I'm just telling you, as Jesus, that life is so much more than the physical. And as long as you spin your wheels trying to get physical stuff and trying to use me to get your physical things, you're missing out on life. He says, I am the bread of life. He says, I'm not here to point you how you can find life. I am the bread of life. This bread of life thing, fascinating. Because of the seven I am's, only one thing is repeated, and it's repeated three times. Life is repeated three times. This is very, very, very important to Jesus. So folk who are looking for the physical, they're looking for the baker, they're looking to Jesus to throw them the bone and to help them and to give them what they need. He says, you're missing it, you're missing it. Another way that we follow Jesus but inappropriately, wrongly, is we want him to be our advocate for our agenda. In chapter 6, verse 15, now this is right after he did the uh, picnic. Okay, they just saw this, all these people fed with the five loaves and two fish. And so, of course, they're seeing this major miracle, and they're not stupid people. And so, perceiving then that they were about to come and make him king by force, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The G- these Jew- Jewish folk have been under the thumb of Rome in major ways. Rome had been taxing already their dire poverty, so their meals got farther and farther apart. Their kids got thinner and thinner. Their hope was all but evaporated. They were uh, humiliated regularly by the Roman guards, by the Roman government. They were waiting for their Messiah to liberate them, right? And so Jesus comes around, and he can do some pretty powerful things. And so what are they thinking? Rome's going down. We got Jesus. <laughs> they're, they're feeling pretty good about this. And so they want, to, they want to make him king by force in order to get what they want. Now listen, this is because we do this all the time in the evangelical church. We try to take Jesus by force and make him king of our agenda, our thing, our uh, Tradition, our uh, theology, whatever we want. Because, see, we can't, even though we've erected these great structures, that we use Bible verses like these guys do, we use Bible verses to try to put together. Uh, we know that, that uh, we can't fight for them on our own because it's like fighting for my own thing. But see, if I get Jesus in there, we really want Jesus as a mascot. We want his picture on our coin or on our flag. We want Jesus to be our... We're going to force him to get behind this thing because if this is Jesus' idea, not just my idea, how do you argue with that? And so we, we want to use Jesus. And where this often comes in, sometimes, uh, as believers, what we end up doing is we uh, give our lives to noble causes. They're noble causes, good things, uh, maybe Christian things. But in time... These things bump up the scale. They kind of push Jesus down. They're how we get our identity. They're good things. They're important things. And we want Jesus to help us accomplish our job. And Jesus is saying, hang on, no, wait a minute. I'm, I'm not here to help you accomplish your agenda. I'm here to give you a new one. I'm not here to just go do what you need. I'm here to get a whole new life. I am the bread of life. I am the sustenance. I, you're not living yet. You're going after the wrong thing. 
Are you following after a Jesus that you just hope and you just trust in that he's on your team so that your team might win in some way? Uh, the third way that we use Jesus is we use him as a miracle worker. Verse 30. We think of him as a miracle worker. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? Uh, what work do you perform? This is wild because he just did this major thing with the five loaves and two fish, right? This, they saw a huge thing. But, but, they, but, but miracles of yesterday don't always satisfy the appetite today, do they? No, no, no. They need it more. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. These are the folk that uh, following Jesus, really what they're on, they're on a, a need for spiritual speed. You know, it is, it is an issue of I'm following, and we say this all the time. What do we mean when we say God showed up? God really showed up. What do we mean? Well, there was a great emotional thing of some sort. It was just a, we blame it on God. God showed up, and he may. But you know what? God was always there. He didn't just show up during that time. And, and focus into this idea what they're doing is they're looking down on an adrenaline, a spiritual adrenaline rush. And if in law, I keep having these existential things and these, these encounter things and these experiences. See, that's really what it matters. And this, is, this gets really heavy in church work because you'll hear stuff. You know, the worship set better be better next time. And, and the sermon's got to be a little bit more entertaining. And you, you, you know what? We better make sure the coffee's a little bit better and the service and the programs. And, and it's got to be better, better, better because I have got to have my, my, my adrenaline fix. And if this church doesn't give it to me, you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go to Grace for a little bit and get it there. And then that one doesn't, when that one wears off, because it will in time, I'm going to go to Elevate and get that one for a while. Then I'm reverse, and then maybe I'll come back here. And they're just on this rotation. And what they're doing, they're, they say they're following after Jesus and looking for Jesus, but Jesus comes to these people when, when they say, give us a sign. We went, and Moses kept doing it. <laughs> Moses didn't just give him manna one day. He was on, aren't you better than Moses? Can't you can't keep giving? If you're a God, certainly you can. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm not all about you having your adrenaline rush. You're doing your safe version of extreme sports using the church. I'm not, I'm not going down that road. And so uh, you need to know that just as life is more than physical food, life is more than your emotions. And your emotional drive. I mean, it's, there's a truth issue here. Unless you believe that I am He. Okay, it starts there. And praise God for the emotional stuff. I love it. I love it. I love it. it goes, but it goes like this, doesn't it? It does. And He's not here, and He's not here. He's here, and He's not here. He's here all the time, regardless. Uh, we can't seek Him for the sake of the uh, emotion, for the adrenaline rush. It's a bad picture of Jesus. So how do you, how do you partake? How do you eat Him? Well, it, Verse 51. He says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, you can imagine this was a bit of a stumbling block. These guys don't even eat pig, right? And so they don't even eat his flesh. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. This is sound like something out of twilight or something. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father has sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that your fathers ate and died. Now, this can be kind of a confusing passage, can't it? 
um, the Jewish people believed that there was a storehouse in heaven filled with manna. And according to the Midrash, uh, just as the first Redeemer, which would have been Moses, brought down bread from heaven, so the second Redeemer, the Messiah, would bring down bread from heaven. The, The people had, just like the woman at the well, remember, the people were expecting and looking for a Messiah. And the Jewish tradition was that when he comes, he will, like Moses, bring major bread with him. And so Jesus looks at them and says, you're right, you're right, you're right. I mean, it wasn't inspired, it was a Midrash, but you're right. I am bringing you special, but you need to understand. It's not physical bread. They ate that and they died. It's me. I am the bread from heaven. That's how he presents it. Now, we we look at this and we still go, oh, well, this is still, I'm not sure what this means. Don't, don't get too hung up in this, right? Jesus is speaking in metaphor. Here's that not right. Doesn't he say, I am the bread of life? We don't think he's a big old loaf of bread. We, we, it's a metaphor. He's already told us what this means to eat and drink in verse uh, 28. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing... I don't have this one on screen, y'all. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who is sent, that you understand the who me is, that you believe in him who is sent. The eating and drinking his flesh is to believe in who he is sent. Uh, Jesus here, obviously, uh, his blood is still in his veins. Uh, his body's not been broken. Uh, the Last Supper, blood was still in his veins. If, in fact, it somehow can get out of his veins and into the cup without him having to die, then why could that not have happened with the crucifixion? Why did he have to, to die? He's speaking a metaphor here. And Jesus knows he's pointing to a very real uh, understanding of bread. If I'm going to eat bread, you know what? Bread has to be broken. You can't have your bread and eat it too, is what Jesus is saying. Bread has to be broken. And so he's referring to that time when his body, bread, that which is going to bring nourishment, that which is going to give life, when his blood, that which is going to give life, will be broken and spilled. He's talking back to that time when he will be on the cross. It was an a, uh, article written a while back, actually a long while back, it's in the 60s, medical doctor though, regarding how Jesus' body was, was broken. He says that after Jesus had been up all night, he'd been up all night with his kangaroo court and beat up by the soldiers all evening. He says, In the early morning, battered and bruised, dehydrated and worn out from a sleepless night, Jesus was taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress Antonio, the seat of government of the procurator of Judea, Pontius Pilate. We're familiar with Pilate's action in attempting to shift responsibility to Herod Antipas, the Tetrarch of Judea. Jesus apparently suffered no physical treatment at the hands of Herod and was returned to Pilate. It was then, in response to the outcry of the mob, that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to scourging and crucifixion. Preparations for Jesus' scourging were carried out at Caesar's orders. The prisoner was stripped of his clothing and his hands tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire stepped forward with the flagrum in his hand. This was a short whip consisting of several several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached near the ends of each. The heavy whip was brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders, back, and legs. At first, the weighted thongs cut through the skin only. Then, as the blows continued, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissues, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. 
The small balls of lead first produced large, deep bruises that were broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back was hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area was an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it was determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner was near death, the beating was finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus was then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers saw a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They threw a robe across his shoulders and placed a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still needed a crown to make their travesty complete, so small flexible branches covered with long thorns, commonly used for kindling and fires, were plated together into the shape of a crude crown. The crown was pressed onto his scalp, and again there was copious bleeding as the thorns pierced this very vascular tissue. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers took the stick from his hand and struck him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tired of their sadistic sport and tore the robe from his back. The robe had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds, and its removal, just as in the careless removal of a surgical bandage, caused excruciating pain. The wounds again began to bleed. The heavy patibulum of the cross was tied across his shoulders, and the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves, and the execution detail of Roman soldiers headed by a centurion began its slow journey along the route which we know today as the Via Della Rosa. In spite of Jesus' efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam, together with the shock produced by copious blood loss, was too much. He stumbled and fell. The rough wood of the beam gouged into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tried to rise, but human muscles had been pushed beyond their endurance. The 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha was finally completed, and the prisoner was again stripped of his outer clothing, except for loincloth, which was allowed by the Jews. The crucifixion began, and Jesus was quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The ligonier felt for the depression at the front of the wrist, and he drove a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist deep into the wood. Quickly, he moved to the other side and repeated the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexion and movement. The patibulum was then lifted into place at the top of the strips, and the titleist reading, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, was nailed into place. The left foot was pressed backward against the right foot. With both feet extended, toes down, a nail was driven through the arch of each, leaving the knees moderately flexed. The victim was now crucified. As Jesus slowly sagged down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shot along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists were putting pressure on the medium nerve, large nerve trunks, which traverse in the mid-wrist and hand. As he pushed himself upward to avoid the stretching torment, he placed his full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there was searing agony as the nail tore tore through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of his feet. And at this point, another phenomenon occurred. As the arms fatigued, great waves of cramps swept over the muscles, knotting them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps came the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by the arm, the pectoral muscles, the large muscles of the chest, were paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles, the small muscles between the ribs, were unable to act. Air could be drawn into the lungs, but could not be exhaled. Jesus fought to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon dioxide level increased in his lungs and in his bloodstream, and the cramps partially subsided. He suffered hours of limitless pain, 
Cycles of twisting, joint redding cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, and searing pain as tissue was torn from his lacerated back and his movement up and down against the rough timbers of the cross. Then another agony began, a deep crushing pain in the chest as the pericardium, the sac surrounding the heart, slowly filled with serum and began to compress the heart. The compressed heart was struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood to the tissues, and the tortured lungs were making a frantic effort to inhale small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues sent their flood of stimuli to the brain. And after he died, it says, apparently, to make doubly sure of death, the ligonier drove his lance between the ribs, upward through the pericardium and into the heart. John 19.34 states, And immediately there came out blood and water. Thus there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood of the interior of the heart. This is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died, not the usual crucifixion death by suffocation, but of heart failure due to shock and constriction of the heart by fluid in the pericardium. When Jesus was telling the people, you're going to have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, he was talking about them believing and realizing one day, they didn't, of course, at the time, that he was going to be giving his life for them. And only in belief and recognition of his sacrifice for them would new life come. He gave his life that we might have life. Now, as a church, Christians, maybe we've known him for quite some time, and we've adopted a different form of Jesus. We're chasing the Jesus that we hope is going to give us stuff. Maybe we're chasing the Jesus to help our, our agenda, our political activist role, maybe our, 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 our task we want him to help us complete. Maybe we're facing the, the Jesus that we just are looking for the experience from. Jesus says, you've got a, a Frankenstein picture in your mind of me. You, believe, you, you, know, you see me, but you don't believe until we recognize that he is the bread of life. And we seek him in that regard. We've got the wrong Jesus. We have a Jesus that will do us no good down here and certainly won't take us to heaven one day. 